Hey, small town fam. This is Paul Holes. Make sure you subscribe to The Briefing Room with Detectives Dan and Dave. Season two is out now. Subscribe now and thanks. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. We did receive anonymous information that the victim of the first shooting was planning his own revenge. So he knew within his circles who he thought the shooter was. Did not want to share that with us, obviously, but someone knew and told us he's planning his own revenge and we may need to interject there and do something. Hi there, I'm Yardley. I'm Dan. I'm Dave. And I'm Paul. And this is Small Town Dicks. Dave and I are identical twins and retired detectives from Small Town, USA. And I'm a veteran cold case investigator who helped catch the Golden State Killer using a revolutionary DNA tool. Between the three of us, we've investigated thousands of crimes, from petty theft to sexual assault, child abuse to murder. Each case we cover is told by the detective who investigated it, offering a rare, personal account of how they solved the crime. Names, places, and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of victims and their families. And although we're aware that some of our listeners may be familiar with these cases, we ask you to please join us in continuing to protect the true identities of those involved out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you. Hey, small town fam. How are you? Where are you? Wherever you are in the world, I hope that you're well and safe. We have a really interesting case for you today. It's one which, in my opinion really illustrates the uniquely small-town dynamic of Detective Sergeant Graham's jurisdiction. I loved having a glimpse into that aspect of his work. And honestly, even though Graham is halfway around the world from us here in Los Angeles, there are more similarities than differences in the way detectives catch up with their suspects. This episode is also the last episode you'll hear this season without Paul Holes in it. That's because... As with the episode, The Most Dangerous Time, we recorded this one before Paul joined the team. However, Paul will be back next week, front and center, to tell us about a triple murder he investigated during his own storied career. Dan, Dave, and I thank you all for being here. Now please settle in for Moving Target. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dave. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. And we have Detective Dan. Hello there. Hello, you. And small town fam. Do do, 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 do. Do a little dance because we're very excited to welcome back Detective Sergeant Graham. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me again. Ah, we're so happy to see you, Graham. See you over Zoom. Yeah, it's lovely. 
So, small town fam, perhaps you can tell Graham's not from around here. Graham, just give us a tiny snapshot of your jurisdiction. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm on the east coast of Australia, so pretty much halfway between Melbourne and Sydney, right on the border of the states of Victoria and New South Wales and a town called Wodonga. That's in Victoria and just north of us by the Murray River is a town called Albury in New South Wales. So we have a fairly complex little city of about 40,000 people for us in Wodonga and around about the same but a little bit more over in Albury. So combined we're pushing that 80,000 population but very hilly, a lot of ranges, a lot of bushfires and very, very hot during the summer, very, very cold during the winter. Excellent. All right. Well, you have a really interesting case for us today. I'm just going to hand it over to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, this uh, case came to me in about September 2020. So it's not too long ago and um, really made one of those days where you think maybe I should have stayed in bed. You'll get the gist of that (laughs) as we go on. But uh, it was a couple of drive-by shootings we had, which is very out of the ordinary for us. So the first time, I guess the uniform fellows got called out it was about five o'clock in the morning. They got a call to one shot fired into a bedroom window of just a residential house in the western part of the city. Just normal suburbia, a pretty typical residential street. Not much going on other than about five o'clock, the, the loud gunshot and penetrated the front bedroom window of um, this male and female's house. And the person who was home at the time was uh, Mark, was home with his wife. They were up at the time actually and they called Triple O, obviously immediately. Triple O is like 911 in the States. Yep. The shot was heard and they realised that a shot had gone through their front window into their bedroom wall. My team called me just after six o'clock once they got the scene managed and locked down and you know, no one in, no one out, and as secure the scene as most uniforms will do. And I was making my way to try and get to the scene and try and get my head around exactly what was going on, let alone wake up without a coffee. So it was a little bit of a rude shock to wake up <laughs> to this. Not our normal start to the morning for such a town. A pretty big deal, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So we knew the pressure was on and immediately we started to think, what's the link here? Is this a targeted shooting? Is it someone inside the address or is it just a mistaken identity and everything in between? It was game on, I guess, from the start. I managed to get myself a bit ready and the phone's running red hot, as you'd imagine, and making sure that the scene for my investigation and particularly then the team for some forensic capability, being ballistics and all the rest, was certainly secured. And what quickly became known to us was that that address where Mark lived was definitely well known to us. And so was Mark. Mark was reportedly in the drug scene and was very well known to us. We'd actually been through that address a couple of times, as in we'd done some warrants there and before. So it was probably no surprise that maybe things had gone a bit awry in his world and someone was after a bit of retaliation or a bit of a message. What do you guys typically encounter on the street regarding narcotics? For us up here in the northeast, it's methamphetamine or ice, that's called. So the ice is really the drug that's causing us the most harm. Probably a lot of places around the world, you know, people can still function on that drug uh, as opposed to heroin we saw in the 90s and 2000s. Ice is definitely, unfortunately, what the scourge is for us at the moment. So heroin and fentanyl are not big players in Australia on the drug scene? No, unfortunately, we are seeing a little bit of heroin start to make its way back into the market. Fentanyl... Not so much. We did have a run of it, but we had a significant amount of deaths and overdoses. And I think that sort of scared a fair few off. So you guys have a history with Mark and that residence, but he felt that he would call the police on this occasion. 
Yeah, his partner actually called Triple O just as an immediate response. So I'm not sure what their conversation would have been when he found out that Triple O was called, but I wouldn't imagine it would have been too nice. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yeah, probably not his first instinct to call us. Right. It kind of sets a scene for how the interaction's going to go once the police get there as well Is you know, you hear the address, you know what address you're going to and what kind of calls are generated out of that address. And then you're dealing with him in a different capacity. Also, since he didn't know the police were coming and he's not the one who called, it sort of adds an extra layer of up the ante to that encounter. Police are going to be in that house. Yep. So you better hide all the, <laughs> all the spoils of what you've been doing. What sort of part of town is it? Is it just sort of a regular part of town and there happens to be this one residence that police go to a lot or is it a sort of sketchy part of town? It's a pretty normal part of town. Really only probably developed in the previous five eight years, so a new estate. So generally a really quiet area and you're spot on. The reception that was met with the uniform and Mark wasn't the most politest, that's for sure. But we went to work and we managed to get ourselves in to be able to assess the scene, have a look within the bedroom, but we weren't allowed too much around the house other than that, as you'd imagine. He didn't want us to probably find anything else. So we went to work and found some CCTV around that area that did have really bad footage, unfortunately, as you guys would appreciate. Sometimes you get really crystal clear footage and this footage was not the best at all. Um, but it did have a vehicle around the time that was within the vicinity, but we weren't able to get any direct footage on that house. So there wasn't a lot of CCTV in that area. And that's pretty common for us up in the country that we're finding we're probably a little bit behind the city that every second house in the city would have cameras, but that's not the case up here. So we're lucky in one respect that we did have a vehicle to go by, but all we could really see was that it was a small car and at best we knew it had four wheels because it was moving and that was about as good as it got. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a good case, but um, a really good search of that area didn't give us much either. So we're up against it. We had a victim in Mark that didn't really want to cooperate, although his partner was quite scared. We had no shell casing. We didn't find anything through a really thorough search. We had a very small penetration of the window and we found partial of a projectile, a 0.22 caliber round that had gone into the bedroom wall. So we had something there, but nothing else, no fingerprints. It's a shot fired, so there'd be no fingerprints. We had no footprints. And at about five o'clock in the morning, no witnesses at that part of town. So regardless of a victim that didn't really want cooperation, we certainly had to investigate fully because this isn't what we wanted going on in our small community, particularly with that randomness of a drive-by shooting. And it was at that point, I think I got a phone call from a resident on a different part of town who said, I'll understand you, you know, there's been a shooting, I might have some information for you. I've got actually the vehicle on camera doing the shooting. So I'm like, fantastic, this will be a nice little wrap up. We should have this done by lunchtime and time to go to the pub. <laughs> but no, unfortunately, it took me a little while to get my head around that he was referring to a different address, that there'd been a second shooting. So the first shooting with Mark was in a street called Georgina Street in Wodonga to the west part of town. And this other address was in a Gordon Street, completely different part of town. So there was no mistaking that these were two separate incidents. So I managed to get other members to go to this other address where my friend decided to let me know he's got the footage of this exact car. And again, we got that footage and had a look and there was no mistaking that this was a separate address. And we're lucky enough this time that this camera actually had audio. So we're able to hear the shot go off quite loud and had the car in full view of the camera, although again, not to the point where it was an ability to be able to identify the vehicle. So it was only side on, there was no registration that you could get. You couldn't see who was in the car, but it was definitely an odd shaped small vehicle, 
probably not the one you want to be doing drive-by shootings in. You know, it wasn't a Chrysler <laughs> 300C or a, or a big Jeep or something. I mean, it was a real small little dinky car that we thought, okay, maybe someone has used their own car. Maybe this isn't a stolen car. So we spoke to the people at that address that we thought was the target and probably no surprise that address was known to us as well. Uh, but this shot would have been, was aiming at that locker units and this was the furthest unit from the street. So probably about a 30 metre shot and probably wasn't using the front sight that much. And we think that shot's gone way over the target and just didn't hit. So a really thorough search again of that scene. There was no penetration of windows or walls or roof lines. No one heard the shot other than it was on the footage. No one was woken up, but a little bit nicer part of town, I guess, than what we would expect that to happen. But unfortunately, again, just a small drop in that ocean of a bit of badness going on in that community affects everyone. And we had some elderly neighbours nearby that were quite upset at the fact that there'd been a shooting at the house next door. So the pressure publicly was starting to rise up as well, that we had these two separate shootings on the one night. And the risk there is obviously a stray bullet going anywhere is not going to be a good thing. The person who called you and said, hey, I've got video of your shooting. Is that the person who lives at this residence that was shot at? Or is it a neighbor who's just in the area and says, I'll reach out to my detective friend? Yeah, someone that was in the area, not too far from there, and had uh, checked his footage through the night, just through activations and saw this car because they were aware of that address as well. So, yeah, as I said, it took a while for me to get my head around that this wasn't the same one that we were actually at. This was a second address. Did that tiny, odd-looking car, even though the first footage was quite grainy and you couldn't really see any real detail to the car, could you at least tell, like, oh, it's also a smaller car? Did it look like it might be the same car, I guess? We thought that, exactly. We thought it could be the same car. They're not distinctively different. We didn't have a large vehicle and a small vehicle. They both just look small. We're thinking already that these are linked. Obviously, we don't have too many drive-by shootings, let alone two on the one night. So we're starting to think these are linked, but the evidence that we would have to get to a court or before a jury would have to be pretty solid. Where the exact shot was fired from in this second place, we could see because we knew where the car was and where that loud crack went off. We knew exactly where that shot was fired from. So a really thorough search again, looking for the shell casing. But um, unfortunately, again, didn't come up with too much. No projectile found, the shell casing not found. As the shot was fired from within the vehicle, it's possible the projectile could have ejected within the car. There's no other evidence physical that we had other than this was captured on CCTV. We wouldn't have known about it. Let's just say that it was the same shooter. Would it have been possible for them to get from location number one to location number two in the amount of time that you got that second phone call? Yeah, most definitely. The times were a couple of hours apart, more than enough time to go from one scene to the other. So we're already thinking, what is motivating this shooter? And we didn't have a lot to go on. So both addresses weren't cooperating. There was no real links between them other than known to us and perhaps in that drug scene, they're probably more in competition from each other. So again, thinking, is this someone trying to get into the market? Is this someone that's not happy with any debts that may be owed? As I said earlier, you know, the community was really getting into this. The local media knew, so they were turning up and the jungle drums were definitely beating and we were getting lots of different information coming in and a lot of that random made things complex. To weed out the good information from the bad become a real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have to chase down all those leads, right? Yeah, I can't leave anything unturned, particularly when people want to call our Crime Stoppers number here and give anonymous information. And sometimes that can be as damaging as it can be beneficial. So we had to make sure we covered absolutely everything 
Also, we just had probably random people ringing up trying to dob in their local drug dealer they may have owed money to and thought if the coppers can lock them up, then I don't owe that money anymore. Right. <laughs> just to educate our listeners and myself, in Australia... How common is gun ownership and how often do your officers come across people with guns? Gun ownership in the northeast of Victoria, where I am on that border town, quite common. We've got a lot of farming areas, so we're talking high caliber weapons, long arms for farming and destruction of animals. We do see a lot of guns stolen from random break-ins at farmhouses. And we did have an amnesty a long time ago where we wanted everyone to register their guns, but there was certainly a lot that still slipped through the system and unregistered ones are definitely out there. But certainly quite expensive to buy a black market gun here. So once the criminals can get their hands on them, they're worth a fair bit. But as for instances that the police would come across, very rare that we'd come across armed defenders with firearms. So nowhere near the volume that is expected in the US. And do police officers carry guns in Australia? Yeah. So the stakes were high. We knew we had someone in our town going around with a operating firearm. It wasn't an imitation. We had to go to work with our New South Wales counterparts on this as well. As I mentioned, you know, we're ordered with them to the north. There's every chance that maybe someone of interest was skipping the jurisdiction. However, at that time, COVID was well in place and we had actually a border closure between the state of Victoria and the state of New South Wales. So the checkpoints on every part of that river were manned by police. So that gave us some comfort, but a lot of work to do and go through which vehicles were going through those checkpoints. Some were being recorded and some weren't. So it was a bit of a needle in the haystack to go through thousands and thousands of cars crossing every day between the jurisdictions. So we're effectively one city, but bordered by that river that separated the jurisdictions. And based on the proximity of your jurisdictions, I imagine you guys share a lot of information. Yeah, daily. I was making my New South Wales counterpart across the river fully aware what was happening and whether they had any intel they might hear from their sources as well and could feed that directly to us. But probably more so around the risk that if we come across this odd-shaped small car and if a pursuit started, then their level of risk and their policy in their jurisdiction is a little bit different to ours. So from our point of view, if we're going to chase that car across the border, we need permission before that happens. You need to get the authority from that jurisdiction that we can enter theirs and still chase that car. Oh. That's interesting. That is interesting. Quite complex. Yeah. And for us, if we got a couple of drive-bys, I would make sure that our dispatch was forwarding that information to other agencies within our county. Or if we had information that they were going to a different state or a certain way, we give them that information because I don't want a police officer pulling over a car, not knowing that this car is possibly associated with two shootings earlier in the night and then they get ambushed. So you have to push that out quickly. But where we live in fresh or hot pursuit, I can follow that car into another state. Could you arrest them in that other state also? You could detain them, put them in handcuffs, wait for somebody from that state to assist you with the arrest. They're going to have to handle the paperwork. But certainly just because we get to a border for us makes no difference to me whatsoever. We want that other agency to know, hey, we're headed your way. Just a heads up. You also need to respect what that community expects out of their police. So do you push a pursuit at three in the afternoon on a school day? It 
largely depends on the crime that was committed, the dangerousness of the offender. But yeah, it looks really bad when your jurisdiction chases somebody into another jurisdiction and you get in a really bad crash. It's horrible. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. It's that risk to the community and the expectation of what people would want us to do is to chase these people and stop them. So we made sure all that information was shared. And the problem there was probably more so that it would only take three minutes for a car to go from the middle of our city to the middle of the next city. So the timing's really short. So by the time that we would come up on our radio and say that we may be pursuing this vehicle wanted for a drive-by shooting and for the supervisor to process that and risk assess, you're almost crossing the border straight away. So we generally, as part of that call of coming up to our radio in pursuit is let New South Wales police know that we have commenced a pursuit that's within the striking distance of their border. And generally, they're all up for it. They're not going to back away from that. They start setting up on the border and waiting to take over. So your neighbouring jurisdiction now knows that there could possibly be a pursuit that crosses into their territory and that they also should be on the lookout for this weird, oddly shaped little car. Yeah. It did help with the border closures, for sure. So everyone on those border checkpoints were keeping an eye out for this odd-shaped car. We were waiting on some experts to look at the footage and see whether they might be able to make it out. We had some former mechanics that were now policed having a look at it as well. And everyone had a few different theories, but um, it was definitely an oddly-shaped car that we weren't used to seeing around town. You know, the country policing a little bit limited on numbers. I think we had about four investigators. Ballistics-wise, we're hoping to get some assistance out of the city but they were like four or five hours away and they were busy with the city shootings or the city matters that were going on. So we're on the chalkboard to be ticked off, but we're probably a bit down the list, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) So we had to make decisions. Do we release the footage of this car to the public? Did we want to let the people or the shooter know that we had this car on camera? Would they then get rid of the car? And we decided to release the footage from the shooting where the projectile missed. So that's shooting number two the one that happened at the apartment block. Right. We did receive some information overnight that there was actually a third shooting that occurred at a different address, a third address. So now we had three. This one that we just learned about, this third one in chronological order had occurred first, some hours before the one that Mark was the victim of. So we had to attend this address and yep, bullet hole through the glass window of the lounge room. And this one went through glass A picture frame had been resting against the glass, wasn't up on the wall, penetrated that picture frame. And the trajectory of this one was going up. So this one actually entered the wall a lot higher than where it entered the glass. So it sort of entered the bottom pane of the lounge room window, but the trajectory was going up. And that was reflective probably of the landscape there. It was actually on a bit of a hill, the premises. So we had a bit of an idea where the shot may have come from. And as I mentioned, we were waiting on our forensics and we were a long way away geographically, but we were under pressure to progress this investigation that this was now the third that we knew of. Are we going to see more? What's the risk to everyone? So we had to make do with what we had and try and do our best ballistics examination ourselves. So we knew the hole was through the glass. We knew where the round actually came to rest on the lounge room wall a bit further away. So we got one of our colleagues to go down and get the longest piece of string that we could get and uh, (laughs) did it the old-fashioned way. It's so effective though. Yeah, yeah. Here we are rolling out a piece of string through those holes and um, out to the street. And it really gave us a good indication as to where that person either stood or as we knew from the other two, they were in a car. So we knew roughly again where we thought the shot had come from. 
How far away was this third crime scene, which actually turned out to be the first? How close to the other two was it? Probably around that five kilometre distance away, so not around the corner, but definitely within still the township. The media release, did that generate this third call, which actually turned out to be the first shooting? Yeah, it did, yeah. I think the occupants noticed a hole in the window, but again, this third address was known to us, surprise, surprise. And as we established once we got there and spoke with them, that they actually weren't home on that night, so they didn't hear anything, but they did notice a hole in the window and called Triple R. Do any of these three houses, do they know each other? I mean, it's a small town. They've probably heard of each other, but they're not associates, or, or are they? Yeah, that's right. We didn't believe so, but as we sometimes keep an open mind, those relationships can come together or they can fall apart really quickly. So we had no intel at that stage to suggest they're all in cahoots with each other. We believe they would know each other, yes. So it's a little bit up in the air as to what was this motivation behind these shootings, what was driving the person to fire these random single shots. To us, we're thinking it's sending a message. It's either back off or pay up. And again, forensically, we didn't have much from this one where we got the information through after the media release. We actually had no CCTV. We did find a partial piece of the projectile that seemed to fracture itself as it tumbled through the window and through the picture frame. The pressure was definitely mounting. So we've got now three drive-by shootings across probably about six hours in duration, trying to find any information and any new leads. We didn't have any forensic evidence. And we were up against it. No one was really talking to us. And we weren't getting a lot of assistance, unfortunately, through the ballistic capability because they were tied up elsewhere in the state. So we had to go with what we knew, small calibre, no shell casings. Our best lead was this car. We did receive anonymous information that Mark, the victim of the first shooting, was planning his own revenge. So he knew within his circles who he thought the shooter was. Did not want to share that with us, obviously, but someone knew and told us he's planning his own revenge and we may need to interject there and do something. So the information was quite serious. We decided to go back and visit Mark, but we went there armed with a warrant just in case so that we had the lawful reason to enter the property thinking that he would refuse and probably get his entire hard drive of his CCTV, not just the piece of CCTV that on the night of the shooting conveniently he said didn't work. And we enter. He's not too happy for us to be there at his place and we find Mark. He's three quarters away through making a pipe bomb out in his garage. <gasps> and he's ready to take matters into his own hands. <laughs> oh, my God. Just a side hobby. Yeah, just a side hobby of explosives. And, um, you know, whether it was that to be a house or a vehicle targeted, but he wasn't mucking around. He was serious. He was going to put that somewhere to, I guess, uh, pay back who he thought was the shooter. So we had to get Melbourne up at that stage. So they had to travel up there four hours up the highway because we've got a bomb that was well beyond our capability and capacity to disarm and make safe. So they had to come up anyway. So the bomb squad and ballistics come up, which sort of turned things a little bit. We started to get a little bit of definitive answers for the court. Should we get down that way that yes, it's 0.22 caliber, small rounds. Thankfully, the team and us did a good job and they validated our level of investigation as to where we thought the shooters were and what had happened at each of those scenes. But then we got sidetracked on having to deal with Mark and locking him up for potentially some serious offences, which was the possession of explosives and his intention to use them against who he thought was the shooter. Did this encourage Mark to maybe cooperate a little more, give a little more information to you? Not so much, no. He was probably more concerned with who we left behind, probably his partner then now being vulnerable. We did try and speak with her, but no, she didn't want to talk to us. So 
we tried a few different techniques there, but um, you know, they were old school, didn't want to play the game and he was in lockup with us for a little while. So yeah, things increased to a whole nother level. And thankfully, as you'd imagine, all the information we're getting in now, you know, the media are aware, they knew we had the bomb squad. We'd sort of gone a little bit quiet on where the investigation was at. We didn't want to release too much. But again, we're getting a lot of misinformation as to who might be involved. But there was one that did stand out to some of the team and that was a real quick call that was giving us a name on who to look at. You need to look at James, this guy in town who, again, was well known to us. You need to look at James and two females, one named Ruby and one named Terry. A lot of other calls would come with a whole backstory and the reason why and justification, but this one stood out because it was just short and sharp and to the point. And one of the team came and said, well, I think we need to follow this through because this guy, uh, James, certainly would be up for this type of thing. Was he also a known drug dealer, James? Or did he dabble in other things? Yeah, he was more a weapons guy involved in firearms, some violence in assaults, serious assaults which made us think this could be up his alley. And part of that call also gave us some information about a motivation that this was all over a particular drug dealer that had been going around our town named David. David was one of the well-known drug dealers in town, was getting a bit loose and standing over people. And the information we thought was that James would take things into his own hands and try and send a message to David to back off. So the information we had was that he was targeting these addresses thinking that David was at these and firing shots in them to try and get David to back off a little bit, which great concerns for us, the randomness of how these shots are being fired into houses and there's every chance they get the wrong address. Sure, well, and in as far as he shot into three different houses, he already had the wrong address. Yep. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, small town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam. Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. 
and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, small town fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with Simply Safe's 60-day risk-free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com slash small town that's simplysafe.com slash small town do it so we had a good motivation then but the pressure there was we knew it wasn't going to go away it was escalating particularly with the pipe bomb scenario with mark you know people were starting to take things in their own hands so we had to act pretty quick so at least we had some starting points. We knew we had to try and find James, um, but having known him, we knew he was quite transient, just would never stay probably in one place more than one night. So we thought we'd go a little bit of the weaker links and target the two women that we believe were involved in the shooting in Ruby and Terry. We knew previous addresses of them, so we decided to go off to Ruby's place first. So it wasn't too far from some of these addresses. I guess if we mapped them all out, she'd almost be in the middle of all three of these shootings. So we go knocking on her door, again, armed with a warrant just in case we needed it. And lo and behold, we got no answer. So we get permission and we force our way in and she's nowhere to be found. There's no one in the house. But what was clear to us was that someone had left in a hurry. There was still food out. There was half coffee drunk, cold by then, but it was no sign that someone had packed up and decided to move on. This was left in a hurry. So we're concerned, I guess, for her welfare as to whether things started to turn on her and whether any retaliation had taken place. And we decided to try and reach out to some family. We knew that we were in town. We went and visited some friends and relatives and eventually we were able to get her on the phone. She decided to speak with us on the phone. Ruby decided to speak with you? Yeah, yeah, she did. She was in a lot of fear. She was very scared and just said she had to get out of town. And we're like, yeah, we, we think we know why you need to get out of town and you need to probably come and speak to us. But no, she goes, no, no, I don't know, don't know anything about this and not sure what you're talking about. I just need to get out of town for other reasons and I'm not going to tell you where I am. Okay. So all the usual investigations go on there as to her phone and where is she, but she'd rung from a, another friend's phone. So almost a bit of a dead end, unfortunately, but at least we're in contact. Did you say that Ruby reached out to you? Yeah. So Ruby reached out to you to say, I don't know anything about this. She's trying to get out in front of this. Yeah, so we'd been knocking on friends and relatives' doors trying to find Ruby and saying we've got concerns that she may be involved in these shootings around town. We've got great concerns for her welfare, so we need to speak with her. So family got a hold of her. Ruby rang me on my phone and, you know, I understand you're looking for me. Yes, we want to make sure you're okay. How do we know it's you? We need you to go to the nearest police station. No, I'm not going to do that. I just need to get out of town and lay low for a while. We know why you need to lay low, but it was a bit of cat and mouse. Typically, uh, it's not uncommon. They just play dumb. Why would you be concerned about me? Why do you need to get a hold of me? They're fishing. They're fishing for information. They want to know how much the police know. We play this game all the time. And it is always funny when the police start hitting multiple addresses. And depending on the lifestyle that these people are involved in, they don't like getting attention from the police, even if it's, we're not looking for you. We're looking for this person. But they're like, we don't even like when the police are on our streets. So why don't you go ahead and contact them so they stop coming by my house? I see. You get a lot of peer pressure. 
Aha. So Ruby would get peer pressure from her other, perhaps somewhat sketchy friends going, this is not cool. Or you've got family that don't condone your behavior and they're like, tired of her shit. Call the police. Yeah. And both those scenarios are accurate in this situation. One, they didn't want us knocking on their doors looking for Ruby or you're right, just that um, moral compass of we don't agree with this. This isn't right. So you need to contact this person. So yeah, it was quite an interesting turn of events, but we believe that she was safe. But you're right, it was um, a bit of that Kenny Rogers, know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And <laughs> she was definitely trying to hold them, but we're all over her. So we turned our attention then to Terry and uh, we're able to track her down just through, again, the local people that were helping us out. And we tracked her down to a caravan park just on the outskirts of town. And we did some surveillance of that caravan park and found a oddly parked, small, odd-shaped car that was quite distinctly the same as the one we'd been looking for on the footage. So we all roll out to the car and we roll into her cabin and knock on the door and we check the car. It's got some false plates on it, but we're able to check the engine and it's actually registered to Terry. She's home. We ask her, so this is your car? Yes. Who's had it the last few days? Oh, I lent it to a friend. What's your friend's name? Don't know. Where have you been? Don't remember. It's the same script throughout the world. Nobody thinks about the insanity of lending your car to somebody whose name you don't even know. Yeah, definitely no common sense. So her story was breaking down really quickly. This was um, not going too well and you could see the pressure and the stress. So once we finally got our forensics to have a look in the car, we had it towed and examined. And there was a balaclava found in the back seat. We had gunshot residue tested of the vehicle, believing shots were fired from within it. And if you recall before, we didn't find any of the shell casings. You know, I'm almost willing to put a six pack of beer on. We're going to find some shell casings in this car. But unfortunately, we found nothing other than the balaclava. So we thought, well, we're on the right track here. If James is our shooter, we've got the balaclava. He's made a mistake and left it in the car. We'll hopefully get his DNA. But uh, Terry didn't want to play the game. She was trying to tell us that she loaned the car to someone, but we're able to quickly check the CCTV from that caravan park. And all the timings lined up pretty well with the shootings. And the car wasn't loaned to a friend as she tried to tell us. And we arrested her. She was taken into custody and interviewed at length. Things become a little bit real for her at that point. I'm sure it got very real for her. The timing of these shootings, are they hitting an address, returning to the caravan park, going back out, hit another address? Yeah, that's what we're thinking. We weren't sure where they were going back to. The footage at the caravan park showed they weren't going there. So we're thinking there's another address perhaps which could have well been Ruby's because Ruby wasn't home and she had no cameras on her place. You're right, they were going somewhere in between there. There was no way they were just sitting in the car drawing attention to the police that might pull them over. They were going somewhere to bunker down for a couple of hours and either work out where they thought David may be next. So we had to try and identify that address. The investigators did a great job of um, talking with Terry at length. She was very scared and, as I said, her story broke down real quick, so she was going to be charged and she was charged as an accessory to those shootings because she eventually did tell us that um, she was the driver of the vehicle, but she didn't want to nominate who the shooter was. She was just too scared. So things changed a fair bit that we at least knew we were on the right track and we had the right car and we had the right people and now I was trying to find James and the weapon. About how old are James and Ruby and Terry? So Ruby and Terry would be in their late 30s, early 40s and James would be late 20s. So yeah, um, been around the block a little bit, but they've got themselves tied up into some serious stuff. So we um, got a statement in the end out of Terry. She decided to become a prosecution witness for the Crown evidence. 
I think she saw the light after some time in custody and thought, yeah, I've really got myself in over my head here. And she made a statement. She didn't realise that there was going to be shots fired. She knew that they were going out to try and put some pressure on David because they were the vigilantes that thought they would do the right thing for the town and try and stop all this going on. Terry's statement, whilst it was corroborative to the point that the timings were all all right, she said, I wasn't aware that there was going to be shots fired. And then when it started happening, was too scared to do otherwise. And look, I guess that does make a bit of sense. But Terry was, again, hiding like Ruby was, trying to hide herself and putting the car somewhere where she didn't think we would find it. But we did. And things were starting to really come together. Did you just say they thought they would be vigilantes and rid this town of these drug dealers? They weren't wrapped up in all of that scene as well? No, they weren't too wrapped up in that scene, no. They were known to us for other matters, but not so much in the drug scene. They weren't drug dealers, as far as we knew, but I think it was impacting on people they cared about or people they knew and hatched a plan to try and take things into their own hands against David. So they really felt like they were some sort of Robin Hoods where they were going to right this wrong and save some people that they cared about from this surge of drug dealing in their town. Yeah. I don't know what the outcome they were chasing because it was only going to escalate. And knowing David, he wasn't going to take a backward step from that either. It was just going to become a bit of tit for tat and was probably not going to end well. Hey, small town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, Most home break-ins happen in broad daylight. So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, Small Town Fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with. Simply Safe's 60-day risk-free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. Do it. So you've got Terry playing ball, but now you've got Ruby and James in the wind. Yeah, Ruby and James in the wind. And, um, you know, I think once the word got out to the local community and how small of a town it is, that word did start to get out that we'd got the car, we'd got Terry. So Ruby reached out and wanted to hand herself in. I need to come in under my own terms. I would always tell people who were involved in these conspiracies, whoever gets on the train first gets the best seat. Perfect analogy, yeah. Yeah, Terry's got the first-class ticket and Ruby wants to get in one next to her, I think. So, yeah, we took that no problem. And, you know, trying to manage that risk of um, are we being played? Was Ruby just coming in to either set us up or what was happening at this particular juncture for us to arrest her? 
she knew that she was coming in and probably the outcome would be the same as Terry. We didn't make any promises or anything to the like that we said, yes, you're going to come in and yes, you're probably going to be charged. So you probably want to come in and be with us as opposed to what else might be going on out there where either David and his cohorts or James may change his tune and all of a sudden you're in trouble. So I think she decided to opt with us. We had a safe meeting and got her into custody and we didn't believe there was too much opportunity for Ruby and Terry to concoct this story together. So the statement's pretty well lined up together that we were confident enough that James was our shooter. About how many days are you into the investigation at this point that you've got Ruby and Terry in custody? Around about day three. Wow. Three long days, long hours, but we just had to keep going because the risk was there. And did Ruby and Terry actually know where James was or they really didn't know? No, I really didn't know. We believe they probably wouldn't know. And by now, he would have known we're after him. Having known him previously, he's not going to hand himself in. We made the tactical decision to try and get our use of our SWAT team. We call our special operations group, so our SOG, to do this high risk. And we didn't want to put ourselves at risk or the community at risk. So we had the applications in to have authorization to use those resources. And again, coming from the city, you know, trying to manage all that. And we had no starting point though. We didn't know where James was. We didn't even know if he may have fled back to the city. Did he have ties to the city? Yeah, he's had ties to other parts and other parts of Australia. So we really were thinking if he's gone somewhere, we may need to go on the hunt. So we did have a bit of luck and we had enough to issue a warrant for his arrest, even though we didn't know where he was. So we get a warrant from the court and um, he knew that we were after him and the information was really free flowing at that stage as to where James may have been and who he's knocking around with. So we started with his girlfriend and we stayed on her in the hope that eventually he would come to her for some help or at least stay with her. And that turned out to be the case. So, you know, our teams were able to find him and her together and um, we had some options as to how to best take them out safely without involving the community. But unfortunately that got forced on us because um, we headed for the New South Wales border. And uh, as I mentioned before, we had checkpoints in play and we knew that he was high risk. But thankfully, as we said at the start, I guess, of the podcast, that that sharing of information with our colleagues across the border really paid off, particularly in this situation. So they were well aware of the risk. They were well aware of who we wanted at that stage because they were continually updated. And by that stage, we knew what car James is in. So... At times up here, it was almost two, three hours to cross the border. So you're lined up for quite a long time. So whilst he was just thinking he's crossing the border, we let him get reasonably close to the front of the line and eventually some of the uniform members. And it was really unremarkable to the uniform to walk up and ask him to exit the car under the COVID regulations and he was arrested without incident. He was taken into custody as nice as you like. So whilst all the risk was there, um, it ended up being the border checkpoint that made sure that there's such a safe arrest for such a high-risk offender took place. Well, and clearly James recognises it's time to leave the city he's committing all these crimes in. Yeah, so the members on the checkpoint were fully aware who he was, so it was quite easily contained and safe. So we managed to get James, and we managed to get him probably about one kilometre or less into New South Wales jurisdiction, which became a problem because he would have to be extradited back to Victoria, even though he was just inside their jurisdiction. Oh, wow. Graham, James's girlfriend who's in the car with him when they get picked up at the border, what's her name? Sarah. And do you think Sarah knew what James had been up to? Because Sarah was not in the car with Ruby and Terry and James when the shootings went on, was she? No, that's right. It's hard to say. I think from her reaction when James was taken into custody, 
a bit of that shock and fear that came across, she was able to distance herself and alibi herself for all of those matters. So whether he's had a conversation with her, I guess we may never know. But she was released without being arrested. Any property on James when he was taken into custody? No, nothing. So we searched the car, no firearm, nothing on him. And, you know, he's staunch as well. He's, don't know what you're talking about. You've got the wrong guy. Why have you arrested me? I've got nothing to do with this. But we already had the warrant, so he went to Albury Court just in New South Wales. The extradition application was approved and he was brought back to Victoria to face a court within our jurisdiction. And James was remanded on the seriousness of that offending. So at that stage, we charged him with the three drive-by shootings. The next morning, he asked to speak with me and one of the other investigators. I was, at that stage, had just received a phone call about a fourth shooting that had just been uncovered and we had no idea about. So I was dealing with that, which I'll go into in a second, but um, James decided he would, out of the goodness of his heart, tell us where the gun may be. So it was about 40 kilometres out of town, so he'd done a fair bit of effort to get rid of it. We thought maybe he might have dumped it in the river as... Some do up here, but no, he left it at an address. And yeah, we did recover that firearm in the roof of this address. So things were really starting to get a bit of a bow on this package for us. We just about got everything we needed. And yeah, it was a 22 caliber long arm that had been cut down. So the stock of the gun had been cut and the barrel had been shortened. So it was a little bit easier to conceal. But the firearm, when it was tested by a ballistics, was malfunctioning after each shot. So the cartridge wasn't actually ejecting every time he fired it. So... It was operable to the point where the round could be fired, but the casing was never ejecting. So had James found himself in a problem with David and needed to fire multiple shots, he was going to lose. He was only had one shot. I was going to say that gun's no good on a two-way range. That's right. So during his interview, James did not make any admissions as normal, but we got to court eventually and everyone pled guilty to the court as to their role in these offences and that their motivation was to stand up to David and show that they weren't scared of him and what he was doing around town. We were able to wrap it all up, get the gun, got the car, got all three people involved and, as I said, we end up with a fourth shooting but there wasn't enough evidence to link that one to James as well. We definitely didn't have any projectile. We believe that fourth one was definitely linked through the timeline of offending. Again, that fourth address was known to us but Everyone inside was probably using too much of their own product and didn't realise what had happened, so didn't call police. And does Mark go to prison also because he built the pipe bomb? Yeah, he did. He was remanded for quite a substantial time and quickly pled guilty himself. And what about David? He was out of prison at the moment, but did he find himself back in prison shortly afterward? Yeah, he did. So he had some outstanding matters and thankfully our friends over in New South Wales managed to catch up with him, so he went into a completely different system over the border. So a little bit of a clean-up for the town, and thankfully I don't think we've had any more drive-by shootings since. And for comparison purposes, I just want to know more about sentencing. You don't have to give the specifics, but what would James be looking at? What did Mark get for his activities? What does that look like in Australia? In this case, for both of them, it probably come down to their prior history. Both had had quite significant histories. So the range of sentencing in this regard is probably a bit higher than what we would see normally. So I think James got at least two years as a minimum sentence for his role in these shootings. And Mark got, I think, around eight months non-parole period for his role. We would have probably have liked a little bit more, but that's the system, isn't it? Where our job's done once it goes to court, as you know. Right. Do you know how James and Ruby and Terry became friends and friends enough to actually go on this rampage together? 
That's a great question. They wouldn't get into too much of that with us as to how they come across. We think it just seems to be knocking around town together. There's no family links. Um, there was no boyfriend-girlfriend links. Just come across each other and we tend to think a few too many nights having a drink and perhaps some other stuff that they come up with this plan and it just got out of control and a little bit of pack mentality perhaps about let's take things in our own hands. I had a question about the search warrant at Mark's house and you've got a bomb squad there. I imagine in that neighborhood that was better than watching TV that night. And I'm thinking about situations where we've had, you know, we have a tip line where people can phone in tips about drug activity or drug houses. And when we serve a search warrant on a house like that and bust in the door and you walk out with the homeowner, whoever the problem is, you start walking out with people in handcuffs and driving them away, you get quite a bit of community appreciation. Those are feel-good moments. You know that you've just plucked a huge dumpster fire out of a, <laughs> out of a community. You're like, hey, you're gone for a little bit at least. Right. So that was actually one of my questions. When you went to get your coffee and your bun the next morning, did you get like, oh my God, Graham, fantastic. Thank you, Detective Sergeant Sir. You saved the day. You do get a bit of that and you get that little pat on the back, which is great. And that's why you do it. But then we do find after these bigger jobs, the information flow becomes a little bit more active. You know, that's great. You've knocked out that. What about this one? What about that one? So that community confidence increases and they see the result and they see the impact on their street, their town. So it just never ends, does it? Does it make you feel like it's never enough? No, it doesn't. I think we notice that the impact it does have on the community, particularly, you know, the next day you see the front page of the paper and the bomb squad's on there. And as you say, you've got old mate walking out in handcuffs. And we get a lot of praise for it being so quick. And that's the relationships we have around town, not only with the good people of town and the businesses, that give us their CCTV, but also people that would just want to see the good done around town and that moral compass kicks in and people want to tell us. Fantastic. I think it must speak to the character of your organisation. Thank you. We all do our best. And the best thing for me is that uh, we learn a lot along the way. We get the result we want, but every one of my detectives goes home safe. Brilliant. Thank you so much for bringing that to us today. Well done, sir. Thanks, Graham. Thank you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soaring Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soaring Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told 
as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.